All right, that's all I have for announcements. If you will turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, we are going to be starting the next section of our sermon series. Last week, Jason wrapped up the section, The Lord, Man of War. And this week, we will begin our next section, The Lord, Covenant Maker. So Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look 
and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Church, I have a question for you this morning. Where do you belong? Where do you belong? And this question sometimes on a social level can be an easy question to answer if you think about Redeemer Kids. There's the joy and the relief that the children and maybe the teachers have when their parents come to pick them up. The children belong in their families with their parents. You might have a close-knit group of friends where you feel accepted and valued. It might be a group text with your siblings where you share memes or updates about life. It could be a game night or maybe you have a good rapport with your coworkers. And other times, even on a social level, it's not so easy to answer that question. Where do you belong? Maybe you had that context and friends have left. Or maybe you had a sense of belonging, but things have changed. Or maybe nothing even outwardly has changed, and yet you still feel like a child lost in the department store and looking for your mom. Same context, but something just feels a little different. Something feels off. Sometimes it feels like we've lost our bearings and we're not sure where we fit in, where we belong, and it can be disorienting. And maybe you might be in that place right now. We all crave a sense of belonging. We want a place where we feel safe, a place that seems right, where we know others and we are known. Wherever we are, we want to feel like we belong. It is a good thing a grounding thing. It is in many ways an identifying thing to know where you belong. It affects our perception of ourselves, our identity. And God wants to speak to that need for belonging this morning. He wants to address you in the same way that he addresses the people of Israel in this chapter. Now a little bit of background. The people of Israel have been in the wilderness now for three months. We see that from verse one, the third new moon. They have been rescued at the Red Sea. They have been given manna and meat and water. This is a people who have been saved out of slavery, and yet time and again, they have forgotten who it was that saved them. Instead, they have grumbled and they've complained. They've quarreled. They've put God on trial, and yet God has consistently proven himself faithful. He has provided for them, and he has protected them. And in this chapter, chapter 19, God is depicted as a great king, a holy and uh, a king that is unlike any other. We see this in the covenant that he makes in this chapter with the people of Israel. His descent upon the mountain in great majesty, accompanied by the loud trumpet sound, which should make us think of the fanfare that is played when royalty enters. He speaks formally through Moses to the people, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob to get them ready. Similar to how one might send messengers to say, make way for the king. God is being depicted as a great and holy king. 
And now this king is about to do even more than just protecting and providing. He is about to make a covenant with this people. One where he tells them that they belong to him. And one where he calls them to obey. And that is our main idea for this morning. We belong to a holy king who calls us to obey him. I'll say it again. We belong to a holy king who calls us to obey him. And there are three themes in this chapter that we will explore to draw this out. The three themes are the the king's covenant. That's number one. Number two, the king's presence. And number three, the king's mediator. The king's covenant, the king's presence, and the king's mediator. And we'll start with the king's covenant. Now, other ancient texts refer to kings who would write a treaty between themselves and the nations they had conquered. And they would usually begin with a preamble, which kind of declared who they were, and then went into a historical introduction, which usually listed their mighty deeds, how they defeated the other and conquered them, usually in a battle. And then they would lay out their demands. They would include blessings for obedience and warnings for disobedience, which, for example, there was the Hittite king, Merciless, which is an apt name, uh, where he writes... May the gods destroy you and everything you own. These are treaties and covenants that were to be taken seriously. And here, in verses three through six, God, our great king, begins to speak in a similar structure. He speaks of who he is and what he has done, kind of like this historical introduction. In verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God is reminding his people of how he saved them, reminding them of his mighty acts through the plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea. Other kings conquer. This king rescues. Church, we also have been rescued by this king. You yourselves have seen God's salvation. You have witnessed it with your own eyes. We just heard the testimonies of brothers and sisters who have witnessed God's mighty saving power in in the baptism testimonies. Think back on your own salvation, friends. What did God save you out of? How has he washed you clean of your sins so now you stand in righteousness before him? How has he carried you on eagle's wings through pain and suffering? Our God is a man of war. He has fought for us. He has carried us. And now in verse five, he begins to lay out the terms of the kingly covenant. Now therefore, he says, if you will indeed obey my voice, And keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. The almighty God desires to have a people to be his treasured possession. This is not just a shiny trading card that you really like. It's far more glorious than that. Phil Riken says of this term, treasured possession, it is the most prized possession in a king's personal treasury. He wants them for his own. Throughout the Bible, there is this thread where God repeatedly states these words, I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
He says it to Abraham in Genesis. He says it to Moses. He says it to the Israelites over and over. He will say it again in Ezekiel. He will say it again in Jeremiah. In the New Testament, it will be said again to point back to the fact that this is God's desire. This is what he has always wanted, to be their God and to have them be his people. And some have said that this passage is the heart of the Old Testament. And truly, this is the very heart of God himself in desiring to have a people for his own possession who love him, who obey him, who seek to glorify him with their lives, a people for his own possession whom he loves, whom he has redeemed, upon whom he desires to lavish all good things and to give them himself in his infinite goodness. This is what God desires for each one of us, that we would obey his voice and keep his covenant that we would be his treasured possession, that we would belong to this holy king. On in verse six, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Again, he speaks in this kingly way. The nation is to be a kingdom of priests, led by who? The holy king, God himself. God's intention for Israel is that they would not only be a nation with the priesthood, the Levites, which we will learn about, but that they would be a light as well to the surrounding nations, representing God to the rest of the world through the way that they lived out the law. These are incredible reminders of God's faithfulness and his heart for his people. And the people of God respond in trust and faith. They say in verse eight, all that the Lord has spoken we will do And God responds to them. The Lord says to Moses in verse nine, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Now God himself is coming down upon the mountain and we now turn our attention from the king's covenant to point number two, the king's presence. The great king, God himself, is coming How should we prepare? What are we going to do? If you knew that you were about to meet a king, how would you prepare to meet him? What would you think about wearing? What would you want to say to him? How would you know if you are ready to meet him? How would you prepare to be in the presence of a great king? These are the kinds of questions that the people of Israel must consider here. And these are good questions for us to consider ourselves. This is the God that we worship, a great and mighty king. How should we approach him? Let's look at verses 10 and 11. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. He says, go to the people and consecrate them. Why? Because on the third day, the Lord will come down. We will be in the presence of a holy and mighty king. And there is this need for the people to be consecrated, to be set apart, to prepare to meet with God, the great king himself. Let's move down to verses 14 and 15. Moses is obeying here. He goes down from the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Preparing to meet with God 
was a process. Moses says in verse 15, be ready for the third day. In other words, prepare your heart to meet with God. And this is an exercise that requires humility. It is a a heart posture that doesn't come with arms crossed saying, prove yourself to me, God. But rather a posture that is humble, desiring to hear from him and to receive. It is a laying aside of other worldly concerns and preparing to hear from God. An example of this is when Moses says in verse 15, do not go near a woman. That is not because there is anything wrong with women or of sex, which is what he's referring to, but he is giving this command because abstaining from sex was a way for the Israelites to be ready. It was a form of fasting as they prepared to encounter the living God. John Calvin is helpful here. He writes, although there is nothing polluting or contaminating in the marriage bed, praise God, yet the Israelites were to be reminded that all earthly cares were as much as possible to be renounced and all carnal affections to be put away, that they might give their entire attention to the hearing of the law. It's such a helpful phrase, their entire attention. What might be in the way for us as we approach God? How can we give our entire attention to him and his word? Another part of this preparation was that Moses had to consecrate the people, which likely was some form of animal sacrifice, similar to when they consecrated the firstborn of Israel back in chapter 13. And they had to wash their garments. And maybe this part makes some sense to us in that we want to look nice for maybe a job interview or you dress up for a special occasion, you wanna show respect or some sort of professionalism. But this is more than just looking nice. This is more than just putting on your Sunday best. In the Bible, clothing was used to symbolize the state of someone's heart. You might recall how sometimes we speak of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, or the story in Zechariah 3 where God takes away the high priest's filthy garments, and instead clothes him with pure ones. There is a symbolism of the state of the heart. Phil Riken says, in the Bible, clothing often serves as an outward symbol for someone's true spiritual condition. Here it indicates Israel's inward need for cleansing from sin before coming into the presence of a king. And here in the consecration of the people, and the washing of clothes, we begin to see that there is something further that is lacking in us. What these preparations ultimately reveal is that we are a people that needs to be cleansed from sin because God is holy and we are not. We are unworthy to approach him. And now sometimes we might feel like we're not that bad. You might say, I've never murdered anyone. I am doing okay, or maybe we can not be that blatant and we can just consciously or unconsciously compare ourselves to others. I'm not as bad as him. I didn't do that. I wasn't that bad. But these are illusions of our own righteousness that will dissipate when they are held up to the correct standard here at Mount Sinai is where God will deliver the law in the form of the Ten Commandments. And we are going to be going through these in the coming weeks. And they will show us that we are not the good and righteous people that we might think ourselves to be. The reality is that we have all failed to keep every single one of the commandments. 
And even if you might feel like you may have kept some or most of the commandments, James 2 would say that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. God in his holiness demands perfection. That is how far removed from sin he is. And the Israelites are a people who are needing cleansing from sin in order to approach this holy and mighty king. And we also are in need of this cleansing. And now we come to the third day when God descends upon the mountain, Mount Sinai. And it is an amazing thing that Mount Sinai is actually also known as Mount Horeb which is the mountain where Moses encountered God in the burning bush back in Exodus 3. In Exodus 3.12, God said to Moses, this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is a faithful God who keeps his promises and he has brought them to this mountain. Now it is not clear Where Mount Sinai is, there are many disagreements about it. There are many mountains in that area, so a lot of options there. Um, So we don't know, but it is significant that it is a mountain. About a month ago, my family and I went to Arizona for a family reunion and a vacation, and it was a great time. It's the furthest west I had ever been, and uh, also very hot. They say it's a dry heat, but we don't need to get into that. One of the highlights of the trip for me was driving up Mount Lemmon one evening to see the sunset. And Mount Lemmon's peak is a little over 9,000 feet above sea level. We did not get that far up. I think they had mercy on me. We stopped at an overlook at about 6,000 feet up. I know that because there was a sign we passed. But what I remember when I got out of the car and I climbed over some rocks and I looked out over the desert and the wilderness is that I felt two things. Number one, I felt the vastness of the mountain. And the second thing is I felt very small. And I think that is one of the reasons why the Bible is so full of mountain imagery when it comes to God. A mountain is an appropriate place for God to meet with man. Man must go up. God must come down. This meeting on the mountain makes it abundantly clear that God is not like us. He is legitimately awesome. And we are so, so small. Not only do we see the size difference, but God also displays his power. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Let's skip down to 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And a kiln there is a forge or a smelting furnace someplace hot. Deuteronomy 4.11, Moses describes the mountain as burning with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. It is here at Mount Sinai that Israel encounters the awesomeness of God, their holy king, the smoke, the fire, the thick cloud, the loud trumpet blast, the trembling, all of these communicate an otherworldly power. He is all-powerful. He controls the storms, the thunder and the lightning. He shakes the mountain with an earthquake. He is a consuming fire. 
The dark, thick cloud symbolizes that God is mystery. He is the infinite one who knows all and whom we can never fully know. The trumpet, again, signals the coming of a king. All of these combined give us this taste of the awesomeness of God and the absolute terror that it would be to face him or even to defy him. This is an event that shatters all of our categories. We try so hard to make sense of who God is. We have boxes and categories where we put God in, and these are good things to know God is uh, a shepherd, God is a healer, God is good and righteous. And this is a depiction of God, though, that shatters all of these categories and says these are true, but this depiction is not one that we consider often and it is not one that we like to consider, but it is God's amazing awesomeness in his power. It is so far out of our comfort zone. And that is why in verse 16, all the people in the camp trembled. And if you are feeling like you might relate with that, That is a good thing. It is a good thing to consider how God descending upon this mountain ought to make us tremble. This is a holy God who is so unlike us in his perfections, in his righteousness, in his transcendence. There is no one like him. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And as people who have failed to obey his commands and his laws, the right response is a trembling and an awe and a worship with fear and reverence. This holy God is not one to be trifled with. Look at the warnings to the Israelites to not go up into the mountain or even to touch it or even to touch someone who has touched it. Verses 12 and 13. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. God takes holiness very seriously. In verse 21 and 22, again at 24, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many perish. Let the priests consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Verse 24 again, do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. This is not an idle threat. This is a serious, serious warning. What would it mean for the Lord to break out against them? Devastating consequences if we ignore God's instructions. This is what happens when a holy God draws close to an unholy people. A people who, even when consecrated, even when they prepared for three days, even those who were chosen by God to be his people are still guilty of sin against this God and they can only come so close. God in his holiness cannot tolerate sin and it is a grave mistake for us to presume that we have the right to stand in the presence of this holy God when we ourselves are not holy. And this raises for us a serious question. How can we approach God in his holiness? And more importantly, how can we belong to this holy king if we have failed to obey him? Let's move to our third point, the king's mediator. 
God has said, do not come near to everyone except for Moses. And then he asks for Aaron at the end, whom he is preparing to take on the role of the high priest. But Moses here stands as the mediator of this covenant. He does this in the giving of the law. He represents God to his people. He represents the people to God. We can see this in the chapter. How many times it refers to Moses saying, this, Lord, this is what the people said. And then God says, all right, Moses, here's what you need to go say to the people. And he goes back down. This divine back and forth. Moses also fills the role of mediator by consecrating the people again, which was an a animal sacrifice. But even in this role as mediator, God is powerless, oh, sorry, even in his role as mediator, Moses is powerless to bring about the blessing through obedience and the covenant. He cannot do it. And this is the problem. God has said, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, the question is, who will obey his voice? Who will keep his covenant? And the people of Israel have failed to do this time and again. And the truth is that none of us has been able to do this. We have all disobeyed God. We have all gone astray. We have done our own thing. We have sinned against a holy God, knowing that he is this holy, majestic, holy, mighty king. We have gone our own way and rejected him. None of us has ever been able to do this except for one man who did. And that was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, fully God and fully man. He is the one who completely and perfectly obeyed every single commandment, every demand of the law. Jesus obeyed it perfectly. He fulfilled the law of God. In fact, he was obedient unto death. He was crucified for us, bearing the wrath of God for every single one of our failures so that we can receive the forgiveness of God. He is the one who represents us to God. He is the one who represents God to us. We needed someone to stand in the gap and intercede for us. Jesus Christ is the one who is able to stand in that gap. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. As Moses consecrated the people to prepare them to meet God, Jesus offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice, dying in our place, taking the punishment for our sins, giving us his righteousness, allowing us to enter into the holy places. Jesus Christ, our mediator, has come in our place and he has obeyed the law perfectly. And now through belief and faith in him, we now have access to this promise God says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, Jesus has done that. Now, we in him, we have obeyed his voice. In him, we have kept the covenant. And therefore, we are now his treasured possession, the one that he loves. This is how we belong to a holy king. And you wonder if you belong. Jesus came and he lived and he died to bring you to himself, to win for himself a people. Church, Mount Sinai is terrifying. But church, we do not come to this mountain. Hebrews 12 says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet 
and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We don't have time to get into all that this passage means, but I want us to see this. We have not come to Mount Sinai, the great and terrifying, but we come instead to a different mountain, Mount Zion, the city of the living God. We come to Jesus. At Sinai, there is doom and fear. At Zion, there is grace and joy. At Sinai, God says, don't come too close. At Zion, because of what Jesus has done for us, God welcomes us with open arms. Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, a better one, one that is not based on us keeping the law and offering animal sacrifices which can never take away sin, but a better covenant where we by faith have been made righteous by Jesus. The old covenant is the law, the new covenant is grace. The old covenant was for the people of Israel. The new covenant is now open for all who believe. And the apostle Peter uses the same language to speak of the church under this new covenant. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do those words sound familiar? a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy under the new covenant. We, through belief in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we now are the ones who are this kingdom of priests this holy nation, and now we are his treasured possession forever. Brothers and sisters, our God is truly a holy king who commands all praise, all honor, all worship. We were not able to obey his voice and keep his covenant, but Jesus Christ was our mediator who kept the covenant for us. We are now his treasured possession. God, in his love for us, sent Christ for you so that you would be his. He rescues you, he fights for you, he rejoices over you. In him, you have a place where you belong. If you are in Christ, you belong with his people. We belong to a holy king who calls us to obey him. You might ask, why is it that we obey now? Didn't Jesus fulfill the law? And so what, what significance does the law now have for us? And the answer is now we obey with our lives, not to earn salvation, but in gratefulness. And our lives are worship and us being that holy nation now, a witness to the others. 
Our obedience is a witness. And this is not an individual call. We are a people. We are a community that belongs to God. Our identity is a family. We were once not a people. Now we are God's people. We are brothers and sisters. We are sons and daughters of the living God. Let us strive to love one another, to care for one another, to fulfill the law of Christ. Let us rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ. Let us draw near to God, knowing that we have a mediator of a new and a better covenant. And let us rejoice in the fact that we truly do belong to a holy king who calls us to obey him. Let's pray.